Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Romans chapter 1. We're continuing in our series of passages that are misunderstood or misapplied. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about missions. Uh, Let me pray, and then uh, Andrew's just going to give us a thumbnail sketch of the unreached, unchurched of our world. Let me just pray. Father God, uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about people who matter to you. Lord, people do matter to you, so they must matter to us. That's true of those in our faith community, outside our faith community, those who have here heard the gospel and those who have not yet heard. Father, give us hearts that care about evangelism, that care about missions, that care that your name is glorified the world over because we know missions and evangelism exist because the worship of you is not yet universal. Someday it will be. Father, guide our time. Allow it to be profitable. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So Andrew kind of oversees missions for our church, so he's just going to start today for me. Yeah. Thank you so much, Pastor Jeff. Uh, Well, for many Westerners who live in the 21st century, I think it can often come as a surprise that there are still people groups around the world who have yet to hear the gospel or even the name of Jesus Christ. However, missiologists, those who study the best practices and the necessity of cross-cultural missions, they would attest that there are actually many such groups that still exist. So hence, the task of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations or of all people groups uh, is still unfinished. There is much kingdom work to be done. So I want to proceed over the next couple of minutes by just providing a few key terms and then summarizing those, and that will give us a, a kind of a, a picture of the current status of the church's vital mission to reach all people groups with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the three terms I want us to think through. The term people group, unreached people group, and then a third category classified as unreached and unengaged people groups. So let's begin with the idea of a people group. Perhaps that's a term you're familiar with, perhaps not, but a people group is a group of individuals that has a shared identity. So people groups are usually uh, typically um, delineated by a group of people that has a shared language, a shared culture, and a shared ethnic background. And for For mission purposes, a people group is the largest group of people in which the gospel can travel without encountering major obstacles, either linguistically or culturally. And most missiologists would estimate there are approximately 17,400 people groups scattered across the world that the 8 billion people of the world are composed uh, or, or sorted into. And the amount of people groups per country actually varies by country. So there are some countries that have very homogenous people groups, like Japan, to where there's very few people groups in that nation. But then there are other nations, such as Indonesia, that has hundreds, if not thousands, of people groups because each tribe has its own language, its own culture, and is technically considered its own people group. So that's a people group. But then there's a designation called an unreached people group. 
Unreached people groups are those people groups that are less than 2% evangelical Christian in composition. And one missions website defines an unreached people group this way. An unreached or least reached group is a group of people among which there is no indigenous church, no indigenous community of believing Christians with the adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people without outside assistance. So unreached people groups are those that are in an area of the world where cross-cultural missionaries are still needed in order to plant an indigenous church movement that can then be taken over by uh, national Christians. So of this 17,400 people groups in the world, there are approximately 7,250 that are still designated as unreached people groups. And that would compose about 3 billion people worldwide. Uh, so as we can see, there are still many unreached people groups in, in the world. And many of them fall into a world that's classified as the 1040 window. So the 1040 window represents Northern Africa, the Middle East, and some of Southeast Asia. And it's really the countries that fall between the 10th and 40th uh, latitude in the northern hemisphere. And most of the unreached people groups are actually in that narrow window. That's where the vast majority of them reside. But then there is a third designation as well that I want to end with, and that's an unreached and unengaged people group. So that would be a people group that uh, reaches all the qualifiers of an unreached group. However, it also, in addition, has no known Christian workers or presence among it. So this would be a people group that is 0% Christian. And currently, there are about 190 unreached, unengaged people groups left. And that would total about 11 million people. So that's just a snapshot of how the gospel has moved forward and the areas of the world in which the gospel still needs to take root. Thanks, Andrew. So I wanted that introduction because we're going to talk about the fate of the unevangelized. The fate of the unevangelized is an important topic. Those who don't hear the name of Christ, what happens to them at their death? Well, I want to start by talking about a couple. They're named the Ocampa. I don't really know them. I don't know much about them. I've just read about them. But they minister in Colombia among some tribes in the Amazon. Very particularly, they work with the Aruaco people. The Aruaco people live in the Sierra Nevada mountains in Colombia, and they're one of seven unreached people groups left in that nation. Now, Colombia is considered a Christian nation in that it is 90% Christian, 70% Roman Catholic, 20% Protestant, and yet only 23 of about 75 languages have any scripture written in them. And so it's reached in terms of, it's called a Christian nation. It is very unreached in terms of understanding the gospel. And so the Acampos work with the Aruaco people, and really for the first, I don't know, 25 years of ministry, they saw almost no one come to Christ. It was a very discouraging ministry. They would work, and every so often someone would come to Christ, but not once did they see somebody start a church or they had enough people to start a church. 
And then God began to move in a most powerful way. Sometimes God waits for our perseverance to move. I think that's what exactly happened here. And then God moved in a very powerful way. And in the last 15 years, they have literally planted 450 churches among these individuals. How did they do it? Well, of course, God moved. But this was the plan. They decided that they would start buying coffee from the Aruaco people who lived up in the mountains. So they developed a relationship by buying the product of these Indians. And by buying the product, then they struck up conversations and then they struck up friendships. They actually opened a coffee shop to sell their products and they began to share the gospel of Christ. At one point, they had a church in their son-in-law Brandon's house. In fact, that church still exists, but they're praying to get out of Brandon's house because it's not big enough. And this is what they're actually praying. In the village near Brandon's house, there's only one small building and only one key is owned by one person in the building. It happens to be the witch doctor. And so that witch doctor is gonna come to Jesus because people are praying and praying that this man come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, not only because eternity hangs in the balance, and it does, but also because that building has been thought of as the next church for this village. It's the only possible place, and we're gonna see God work in this way. I wanna describe one tribesman. His name, believe it or not, is John. I would expect something a little bit more, I don't know, something I can't pronounce. But his name is John. And this is how God is moving in so many places. John heard from the Ocampos about Jesus. But he knew of Jesus and he kind of wanted Jesus, but he kept Jesus at a distance because he didn't want to give up his sin. And so he was not moving towards Jesus. Jesus moved towards him. And Jesus gave him a vision at night. And the vision was that Jesus came to him and said, reach out your hand. Take my hand and take me in faith. And John looked at his hand and his hand was filled with sin. And he said, no. And he pulled back. And the next night he had the exact same dream. And Jesus reached out his hand and said, take my hand in faith. And he looked at his hand, John, and said, no, it was filthy. And he stepped back. And God gave him the vision the third night. And he reached out to Jesus who was reaching out to him. And he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And now John is sharing the gospel with others among his people groups. These kind of things are happening the world over because God cares about people. And as God cares about people, we ought to care about people. And he's raising up missionaries, maybe some here today. And he's raising up churches to send out missionaries. In fact, we're bringing a missionary in residence, Byron and Nayeli here. We're so excited they're coming somewhere around December 20th. And now the visas are all set. (laughs) That's a pretty good trick in this country, by the way. To get legal visas is very, very difficult. And they're coming here to reach a people group that may have a number of gospel witnesses but needs even more in our area. Why? 
Because God cares about people. And if God cares about people, we need to care about people. Evangelism and missions exist because the universal worship and glorification of Jesus does not yet exist. And it becomes our responsibility to tell others about Christ. Well, I want to pick up with this evangelism, I mean with this uh, introduction to read about evangelism and to read about the state of the unredeemed. Let me read from Romans 1, verses 18 to 21. For the wrath, we just sang about that, didn't we? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, before we actually look at these verses one by one, and we're going to do that, let me just answer the question, what is the state of the unevangelized according to many in our world? I'm going to offer five answers that are often given, five answers that are not true, five answers that are not biblical, five answers that are pure fallacy. The first answer is this, universalism. That is, at some point, everyone will be saved. God will redeem those who both believe in Jesus and those who do not believe in Jesus. That has an appeal to our hearts, but there's nothing in Scripture that would lend us to that conclusion. Let me read from Matthew 25, 46. And these unbelievers will go away into eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. Hell. But the righteous into eternal life. Revelation 20, verse 15 says this. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that is, if not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, if that's you today... Think about your need, our need, every person in this room, in this world's need for Jesus Christ. His death to be the payment of our confessed sin. And we receive him as Savior and Lord. Listen to the verse. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible does not teach in any way, shape, or form universalism. The next is annihilationism. Some individuals would say, you know, the unredeemed don't get to go to heaven, but surely God would not send them to hell forever and ever. But if the Bible is to be believed, those who go to hell will be there forever and ever. Listen to Revelation 20, verse 10. 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Third, some believe in religious pluralism. That's the idea that what really matters is sincerity of faith. All you need is to be sincere in your faith. Whatever your faith is, that will be credited to you as righteous, and therefore you will be saved. And you'll go to heaven if you're a Christian or a Jew, or you'll go to paradise if you believe in Zoroastrianism or Islam or Christianity, or you will go to Muksha if you are someone who believes in Hinduism, or Nirvana if you believe in Buddhism. It's this idea that as long as you have sincere faith, it doesn't matter what faith you have. But Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Acts 4, 12, we read that we have to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for there is no other name in heaven on earth by which a person is saved. The fourth sincere but sincerely wrong view is purgatory. Purgatory believes that when you leave this earth, many of us still have lesser venial sins that are unpaid for. So we go to a place of suffering and we atone for our own sins. But what does Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say? For by grace. Grace is what you and I cannot earn. It's what's given to us. For by grace you are saved through faith. That not of yourselves, salvation is the gift of God, not of works. Purgatory is works. So none of us can boast. Finally, some believe in post-mortem evangelism. Post-mortem evangelism teaches that when you and I die, if we do not know Jesus, we'll go to hell, but then... Jesus himself or a representative will come down and he will preach to us and we will have the opportunity to receive Christ. But what does Hebrews 9, 27 say? It is appointed for man to die once and after that, the judgment. Not die, get another chance, then the judgment. When we die, if our names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, we will be separated from God for eternity in a literal place called hell. Again, I plead with you. If you do not know Jesus Christ, today is the day where you recognize, where I must recognize, we must recognize that we are sinners. Our sin will keep us from a holy God. And Jesus Christ died as a payment of our sin. He died for us to offer grace, what we cannot do for ourselves. He conquered death and rose on the third day that if by faith we would receive Christ, believe in him as savior, we would be given eternal life and then we live as him being our savior and our Lord. So what about the fate of the unevangelized? What about them? Let me again go back to our text. I've read it once. I want to read it again. Romans 1, 18 to 21. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The text begins with uncomfortable words, does it not? It says the wrath of God. We just sang a song that began talking about the wrath of God. We rightly talk about the love of God. We should. You probably know that the Bible talks a great deal about the love of God. 1 John 4.16 says it's actually an attribute of God. God is love. There are 310 passages in the Bible that talk about the love of God. God is love one of immense love. He creates us. He sustains us. He offers redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. He is a God of immense love. 310 passages or verses on the love of God. You know how many are on the wrath of God? 375. That ought to shake us a little bit. That's a little bit surprising. 375 passages or verses in Scripture talk about the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, it's 310 times. Six Hebrew words are used to talk about the righteous judgment of God, the the wrath of God. In the New Testament, we have about 65 passages. And there are two words used, and they... I think give us a lot of understanding of what's going on. The one that is rarely used of God is thumos. We understand thumos from thermometer or thermos. It holds heat, right? Generally, when thumos is used, it's used of me, not of God. It's not used as a compliment of me. It's used if I'm a little out of control, a little hot under the collar, When I should remain calm and trust God, I I lose it. And that word is, is used of me. But what's predominantly used of God is orhe. And it's a controlled, measured, perfect, just, equal to the crime, never exceeding the crime never losing control, never exploding on someone. The wrath of God is a right response to sin. And it says the wrath of God is poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. This really is our first key to understanding the fate of the unevangelized. They are not judged or condemned because they do not know the name of Jesus. That would be unfair. They are condemned and judged because what they do know of God, and we're going to see they know a lot, what they do know of God, they suppress in their life, we suppress in our life, and therefore they are judged by God, and they have no excuse before this holy, just, perfect, righteous God. Why? 
because the law of God is written on their hearts. Let me read from Romans 2, verse 15. It's a remarkable verse. They, the unredeemed, actually all people, show that the work of law, of the law, nomos, that's the Ten Commandments, is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What this is saying is this. We may not know all of the 613 Levitical laws. We may not know all of the laws that are written in the New Testament. Now, we have no excuse for that because we all have a lot of Bibles. But the average person doesn't know all that stuff, doesn't have access to all that stuff. The unevangelized certainly do not have access to all of God's laws. But the nomos, the law, the Ten Commandments, is innately written on all of our hearts. We know that murder is wrong. We know adultery is wrong. We know we ought to honor our father and mother. And we know the first two commandments, that we are not to worship idols, that we are to have no other God beside the living God. That is innately written on our hearts. Whether we have scripture or not, whether we know anything of Jesus or not, that is innately written on the heart of every single person. Those who know of Jesus receive grace. Those who reject anything that God gives them, they receive justice. Nobody receives injustice from God. Nobody. Grace, justice, nobody ever receives injustice from God. In fact, Scripture tells us over and over again that this loving God 310 times is a slow to anger and abounding in love God. Imagine if we had a capricious God. Imagine if we had a God that zapped us for every wrong thought and attitude and action and motive. Half of us wouldn't even get out of this room. Maybe three quarters. I probably wouldn't get off the stage. It's just the way it is. But we have this gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love God, this merciful God. As I thought about this, uh, I thought of something that Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was the senior pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia many years ago. He tells the story, in fact, uh, he shares something in his community. It was like a small farming community at one time. And uh, in this community, there was a small Christian church, a Bible teaching church, and the farmers would gather, and that church happened to be right next to the land of an atheist. And he would choose during worship services to, to run a loud tractor or to do things that would make noise, that would cause disruption in church. And he did it on purpose. And one day he wrote to the local newspaper and he wrote a little editorial and he said, uh, I don't believe in God and I mock God. I don't go to church. And in fact, I try and disrupt church. And, and by the way, my acreage yields a better crop per acre than any land in our county. Explain that to me, Christ followers. And the editor printed it and then the editor actually responded. And he put in the bottom... Lucky for you, God doesn't settle all of his counts in October. And he doesn't. He's a slow to anger 
and abounding in love, God. But what of those who do not know of Jesus? They still know of a God. They know of a God written on their hearts. All of us know the name Helen Keller. When she was one year old, uh, she lost her sight, her hearing, her entire life went blank. It went dark. She was entrapped in a body, unable to communicate with the outside world. And God raised up a woman named Ann Sullivan who, using water and finger and sign, somehow taught Helen Keller to communicate to the point where she actually spoke later on in life. And later, after she could communicate well, Ann Sullivan told her of God. And Helen Keller responded, I knew he existed. I just didn't know his name. This young girl at age one was trapped in a world of darkness. And as she grew up, she still knew of God. Why? Because God is written on our hearts. The law, the nomos, is written on our hearts so that we who repress the truth of God are without excuse. Now, some of you saw the northern lights, right? Beautiful. God's creation. Who created these things? We think of stars. The average galaxy has 100 billion stars, and we have 200 trillion galaxies. And so we think that we have 200 sextillion stars. That would be like 200 with another 21 zeros after that. That's how many stars we kind of think are out there. I'm not sure who counted, but we have a lot of them. And they cry out for creator. Now I think of macroevolution. That's a very unsatisfying scientific theory for me for a lot of reasons. Uh, But a couple are this. It must postulate an infinite number of mutations that are positive. Almost no mutations are positive. They're almost all negative. It goes against entropy, which teaches that nature goes from order to disorder, not disorder to order. But even if one believes in macroevolution, I do not, But even if one does, you still have to explain how we got the primordial soup. There has to be an uncaused cause. Where did we get whatever created the rest of this? So whether if you deny God or you accept God, you have exactly the same problem. There has to be an uncaused cause. And I think scripture tells us that the uncaused cause, the infinite being, is God, who has always been and who created what we see. If you reject that theory, you still have to explain where you have an uncaused cause. And so there's faith in both positions. I just think that scripture is not blind faith, it's living faith. And I accept what God has done for me. Psalm 19, Psalm 8, Romans 1, 
says the truth about God can be revealed, is revealed in the heavens. Just seeing what is up there should cause us to say, there is a creator and I am responsible to that creator. And when we suppress that truth, we are then without excuse. Verse 21 says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Suppress. That's when we look at all that God has created and we say, there's just naturalistic reasons for what we have. I look at what God's created and said, oh my, this has to be a creator. A sunset, a sunrise, the northern lights. There's got to be a creator that made the beauty, the splendor, the complexity of you and me. What happens if a person does not suppress the truth? We're given some examples in scripture. I think of Acts chapter 10, we have Cornelius. He is a pagan. He knows nothing of Jesus. He knows a little bit about God. He doesn't suppress the truth. Acts 10, 4 says that his alms have come up as a memorial gift to the Lord. And what does God do? Because he hasn't suppressed all of the truth, God sends Peter to him and to his household to explain that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. God reached out to Cornelius. Move two chapters earlier in Acts chapter 8. And we have an Ethiopian in Gaza. We have lots of reasons to pray today for that part of the world, do we not? And so we have this Ethiopian eunuch in Gaza. He has a copy of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He doesn't understand that it's Jesus. And 95 miles away in Samaria, Philip is leading an incredible revival and people are coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But the Lord cares about people, even one person. And so he moves Philip out of a revival in which multitudes are coming to Christ, 95 miles to Gaza, which in those days was pretty barren. He moves them to that part. He explains to the Ethiopian that Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the sheep that was led to the slaughter, who did not open his mouth, who died and then rose again as Jesus Christ. And he comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Ethiopian didn't suppress all of the truth of God. And God reached out and met him. I think we have so many accounts from missiologists all over the world that God is doing this. He's doing it through individuals who are being raised up out of a church to go. He's doing it through churches that are sending financially or sending missionaries to the remotest parts of the world, or who are paying for Bible translations. And God is reaching those individuals who have not suppressed the truth, who are crying out to a God that they do not know, and they're coming to know Jesus as Savior. Although written to a different context, I think Jeremiah 29, 13 applies. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And we are part of the individuals who not only seek God, but tell others to seek God. Because in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we read, Therefore, 
We are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We serve a God who cares about people. And if God cares about people, we need to care about people. God is offering grace to every person in this room today. Every one of us is being offered grace. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ as the payment of your sin. His death to pay for your sin, his resurrection is evidence of life after the grave. Believe in Christ, make him your savior, make him your Lord. He's offering grace. For those who do not receive Christ, whether they hear of Jesus or not, they will get justice because they have suppressed the truth of God that is evident to all that is written on our hearts. Nobody will receive injustice from God. Nobody. He's a God of love. He's a God of justice. He's a God of incredible grace. Embrace the grace today. Let's pray. Father God, uh, as we look at misunderstood and misapplied texts, or even philosophical discussions like the fate of the unevangelized, Lord, help us to look to your word which is inspired, given to us, God-breathed by you through a human author and inerrant, without error. Help us to trust your word. If someone here does not know Jesus as Savior, may at this moment they recognize, as we all must, that we are sinners in need of a Savior and what grace Rather than leave us in the midst of our sin, which leads to eternal death, you allowed your son Jesus to pay the penalty of sin, dying on the cross for us, and then conquering death and rising on the third day. That if we would believe and receive him as Savior and Lord, we would be given eternal life. If there's someone that needs Jesus, may today be the day that they by faith believe in your son as Savior and Lord. And for we who know Christ, May we take our responsibility as ambassadors to tell others of Jesus, to support missions where others go to places that we don't have access to, to tell about your son, Jesus. May we be engaged in our faith in this way. So in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.